on everybody's mind is the COVID-19 novel coronavirus that's circling our globe and has infected over 218,000 of us on the planet, taken over 8,000 lives. As a special edition for this podcast for Healing Neurology, we're doing two podcasts about this. This one today that you're currently listening to is our science edition as a conversation between myself, Jillian Ehrlich, your host, and Janie Pennington-Watson, patient advocate and medical conduit. She's brought a list of questions from patients that have sought her out for information, and we're going to try to answer all those today. The second podcast in this series is an interview with Maisha Indigo-Jones, who is a medical anthropologist and farmer talking about how do we root down and find ourselves again in our new reality. So please take both of these to heart. We welcome your questions, comments, and conversation. This is going to be an ongoing story. Thank you for tuning in today for the podcast for Healing Neurology. Welcome to the podcast for Healing Neurology, where we talk about everything that can help heal your neurology, which is really everything, food, lifestyle, mental patterns, environment in which you live and work, medical treatments, pharmaceuticals, nature, culture, and politics. There is no topic too big or too small. I'm Jillian Ehrlich, family nurse practitioner certified in Ayurveda and functional medicine. And today here, we are doing a special podcast episode to share our current best understandings and advice for all aspects of this coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic, including how to gauge exposure and risk, testing options and realities, prevention support, as well as some possible interventions, including those along the cutting edge to keep an eye out for based on the science we currently know about this virus and its better known close relatives, which are also coronaviruses like SARS and MERS. Today we have as our special citizen scientist and patient advocate is Janie Pennington-Watson. She has been a tireless advocate for both patients as well as for functional medicine. And she really has served as a bridge for bringing all of us together for the betterment of the world, for the betterment of the planet, and for the betterment of patients. And so she is here today as a person who is on the front lines fielding a lot of questions from patients who know that she serves as their advocate. So thank you, Janie, for being here with us. Well, thank you for having me, Jillian. And I consider myself a medical conduit. Um, <laughs> you are. You are. I, don't, I don't know if that's something real or not, but mm -hmm. I'd love to make sure that people who are suffering find the right medical assistance uh, for what they're going through. Great. Thank you. And you do have a new website out. I do. It's JaniePennington.com. And there you'll find out uh, a few interesting tidbits about me and what I'm going through uh, medically and health wise. Then also, you'll find out that I have a few other hobbies. Some really fun <laughs> books to read. While you are in quarantine, please find yes. Meeting Eve. Yes, my book. Just a fun read. So while people are staying at home, it's just if they want a few laughs or two or three or five, they can pick <laughs> up the book <laughs> and, and have a good laugh. Good, good. Well, we can definitely use that because our news is not good right now. Yeah. And can you tell me what the numbers are now regarding COVID-19? I mean, it is getting a little scary out there, isn't it? It is. It is getting a little scary. And I do think 
we all think that this will get worse before this gets better, which is why it's good to practice two things. One is getting accurate knowledge, and we'll talk about some sources for accurate knowledge. We at Center for Healing Neurology will be one of them, um, but of course there are others. The second piece is figuring out what to do with your mind while you're feeling scared, anxious, while your daily life and your patterns and your routine has been so disrupted. At the same time we're releasing this podcast, we're also releasing another with Mesha Indigo Jones, and that is the topic of that podcast. So it's staying sane in this time of Coronaville. Crazy, craziness. Craziness. So please check that out as well, because getting your hands back into dirt, remembering natural rhythms, reestablishing some sort of daily routine to anchor and ground us, going back to our breath and our body, watching the sunrise, hearing the birds sing, all of these things are still happening amidst this pandemic. They can serve as good anchors for keeping us on the straight and narrow. And that's what we'll need. We'll need the best, clearest minds in order to make good decisions about how to quarantine and about how to move forward. So that's our encouragement. Well, before you get into the numbers, I'm curious, a lot of people are asking whether or not there are two different viruses within this virus, two strains of it. This is a novel virus, so there may well be two strains or multiple strains. And one thing we know about viruses is that they do have a lot of genetic drift. They share a lot of genetics, and so they change rapidly, and and that's how we name them as different viruses. The coronavirus family is um, kind of a medium-sized family of viruses. I think there's seven different types of coronavirus. So this one is one novel one, and we can actually trace the genetics back to look at when it appeared, which is how we know that it just happened. In our Center for Healing Neurology homepage, about midway down, we have our newsletters, a link to our newsletters. And if you link to past newsletters, we put out a newsletter last week. And in the middle of that, there's actually a link to the, the family tree of these viruses. And so you can go on that and look at how they're all stratified. It's tempting to think that there's different viruses or that somehow that will make a big change for us, but I don't actually think it will. It may change very slightly how we treat them or how we address them. But I think ultimately this is a story about a relatively new virus and how it's moving through our system. I don't know if there's two viruses. Okay, that's interesting. Where are we at now with the numbers? As of now, which this is Tuesday, March 17th at around 5 p.m. Pacific time, we've got documented 197,168 cases. We have 7,905 fatalities. And we've got documented 80,840 recovered patients. I think what's notable is that when I started preparing this podcast Saturday morning, so three days ago, at that point, it was only 153,000 documented cases. Mm. So we have 45,000 more documented cases in the last three days. Now, of note, we are tracking much better. And the U.S. did just release the ability to do a lot more testing. So whether these cases were there before or not, it's hard to tell whether these are actually new cases or now we're just documenting what was already there. Are we really behind in testing at this point? We're terribly behind. Mm -hmm. We're embarrassingly behind. So when you look at some graphs of testing per capita, that's one way to look at it. South Korea, which has a very centralized healthcare system, at 51 million people in their population versus our 329 million in our population, they have tested, this was as of last week, 3,692 people per million in the population 
and we have tested five people per million in our population. So we are distressingly behind in our testing. Certainly, there are some political motivations. We don't have very many cases to report. It looks like maybe we don't have very many cases happening, but that's shame on us. We need to know this information so that we can plan accordingly. Right. Right. And I understand that Bill and Melinda Gates are taking it into their own hands as well um, by sending out kits that people can do at home. Oh, I hadn't heard that. Yes. Yeah. I just had read that yesterday that they're taking upon themselves and not waiting for the government. Great. There are a number of private companies which have stepped up. There was apparently a company in Germany which offered to sell us or send us or give us tests that I think the U.S. government at some point declined, which I was surprised at. But there are now a lot of private companies stepping up to fill the void. Testing is becoming more prevalent. And the initial recommendations were for testing only if you had exposure to a person who had recently traveled to China. So obviously, those recommendations are very different now. Washington State, where I live, where you used to live, we have the Seattle flu study going on. So it is a federal grant that's looking at flu transmission. And Dr. Helen Chu, who was the head of that project, asked if she could test the swabs she was holding for flu for coronavirus, and they declined and she tested anyway, which is how part of how we found our epidemic here. They did, to my understanding, eventually send her a cease and desist letter to stop her testing, and she also declined as well. So in defiance of the federal government, she continued testing. So it's unclear if Washington State or Seattle specifically has more cases or if there's people dying of what we would call pneumonias, elderly people dying of pneumonias in other parts of the country that we just don't know are COVID-19. They're related. Right. Yeah, we just don't know they're related. Well, she's a Shiro, isn't she? Um, she, she really is. Yeah. <laughs> well, so are you expecting the numbers to really climb then uh, once these tests um, are available? The numbers are going to skyrocket. They really are. So let's talk a little bit about what we know about this virus and its transmission. It can stay on surfaces for up to 72 hours, especially for plastics and stainless steel. There's some new research that came out. For something like cardboard or paper, it's about 24 hours aerosolized in the air, like if you sneeze and walk away, those particles, those viral particles may hang out for up to three hours. So first of all, it's hanging around. The second piece is that when we get infected, when this virus essentially latches onto our lungs, to the cells in our, to some of the receptors in our lungs, that can happen five days before we develop any symptoms and perhaps even longer. A new report out of the UK said up to 14 days. Viral shedding or when you are actually contagious, when this virus that now is in your system, starts to leak out of your system and can move towards other people. Viral shedding in SARS began only after you develop symptoms, but with COVID-19, that actually starts 24 to 48 hours before you develop symptoms. So you can walk through a cloud on the street, not know it because somebody was there hours before. I mean, on the street, it's a little hard, but in a building, you know, it might be more contained. You can pick it up just by breathing it into your lungs you can then spend five days without any symptoms. And for 24 to 48 hours of that time, you are shedding virus somewhere else. Someone also asked if, if they're walking down the street, they walk into a building, they have their N95 mask on, um, can the virus grow on the mask? The question really centers around if there's an environment in which it's warm and moist from somebody's breath, if something like mold could grow, which it certainly could, those N95... The N95s are really made for single use. They're not really made for ongoing use. Um, So I don't know if we have good data about that, to be honest. 
Um, what about the reusable N95s? I don't know. I don't know the data on that. N95s are supposed to have limited reusable value, and we'll include a resource for that in our show notes. I would assume that it would stay alive just as long as it would on any other given surface, so up to 72 hours, but I don't know. Okay. And once you're sick, um, for 80 to 85% of us, we will have a four to five days of pretty typical viral infection. The hallmarks of this really are fever and dry cough, but some people still will get other symptoms like fatigue or body aches or some nausea or gastrointestinal stuff or maybe a runny nose. That's less than 5% of patients will get runny nose or congestion. And then people generally recover. What's tricky about this virus is that you can actually continue to shed virus for an average of 20 days after your first symptoms present. And there was one study in The Lancet this week that up to 37 days later. So when we take that in totality, if you're looking at the 30, up to 37 days after you have symptoms and for the five plus you have before, we're really looking at maybe a 43-day infective period. So while we look at the contagiosity or how contagious this virus is, it's pretty typical in regards to other viruses. We call this r naught, like as an R0. This number really looks at how many people one infected person will infect. One person with the flu typically only infects 1.3 other people. With something like Ebola, one person infects two other people. With COVID-19, one person infects two to 3.11 other people. So it's pretty typical Measles, by comparison, infects up to 18 other people. And that might be because children are such great viral vectors, it can really spread. But it's just to know that this disease is not necessarily more contagious, like people are more likely to get it, but it just is around so much more. And that really speaks to the exposure piece that we are walking through this virus day in and day out because people are shedding virus and then they're walking all over the place. They're touching things and we're walking by three hours later, breathing in their air. We're touching what they touched three days later and we're still able to pick up this virus. So once it moves into the body, it attaches to the ACE2 receptors in the lungs and then it actually has like a piercing protein on its surface and it latches on. So it's really not necessarily more contagious than other viruses, but the idea of how long we shed virus for is why quarantine is actually a good idea and hand washing is such a good idea so that by reducing our exposure, by staying away from each other, we actually diminish its presence and that really is the only way to do it. What do you say to people who don't believe in social distancing? People have lots of different feelings about virus and virus transmission. And there are people who think it's a virus, it's going to run its course, let's just do our thing. And I think that that is going to lead ultimately to more fatalities. But we live in a country where that is an option for people. So for instance, in China, when we look at their curve, their curve starts to ramp up considerably in January and February. And then actually by March is, is leveling off. The other two days ago, there were only 11 new cases in China. And I think nine of those were folks who had actually picked up the virus elsewhere and flown home. And the way that they achieved this was with authoritarian martial law for quarantine. So they were able to control their population for better or for worse. That's just the reality there. They were able to control the behavior and activity of their population. And because of that, their curve really decreased after about two months I don't think that that's going to be the case in the United States. I don't think that's going to be the case in other parts of the world. And I think part of that is because there are a lot of people who don't believe in social distance, distancing or don't believe in quarantine. And I think there's also a lot of people in this country who can't afford social distancing. So if they're in a position in which their money 
is made by seeing other people and they're dependent on that money, they're not going to social distance. And I think that really speaks to the level of social support and social services that we have in our country. And my hope is that this becomes an opportunity and a wake up call to change our systems so that our country can weather something like this together. Lessons to be learned. Um, With the goal of um, flattening the the curve and then with what you just spoke about and people not necessarily being able to social distance, how can we reach a point where we can get to that, that curve so that that flattening of the curve so that these hospitals and such aren't overpopulated with the, uh, the virus? Because we are so exposed to this, we are most likely going to contract this illness. Most of us. And we're really looking at between 40 and 70% of the population. And my guess is, is that it'll be on the higher end, even if we do quarantine, because it sticks around so long. It's not a question of if we will get this. It's a question more of when for most of us. If minus our, children. Minus, right? Well, children do get sick. They do contract oh. it. And mm-hmm. they will get, essentially get infected. But they show very few symptoms. And they recover quickly. But they are still shedding virus. And they are still absolutely vectors for disease will it show up in their system later on i don't think we know that information yet kids get tons of viruses when they're young when we all are young we get tons of viruses and it's part of actually what helps entrain our immune system to survive in our world is we get primed we call it priming the immune system this may help children survive better from what i've seen with kids not getting very sick i don't think it's going to be the kind of viral illness that will derail an immune system, but we don't have data on that yet. Okay. So best thing is to just hunker down? The best thing is at this point is to hunker down. So we are going to be exposed. So the idea of my brother's cousin's girlfriend was in a cafe where someone was three days before. Did did I get exposed? Those questions get really tricky because I think we are going to encounter so many exposures I think it's just a matter of trying to flatten that curve. And what flattening that curve means is that few of us are going to be ventilator dependent at a time. And so more of us will survive. Um, And that really is the goal of social distancing. That's the nature of our democracy is that people decide for themselves what the value of their or other people's lives are based on what their own needs are. I'm still hearing stories from my nieces and friends and such that when a bar is open, it's as crowded as it can be, as well as certain restaurants. And um, I can't see flattening that curve with all of these people gathering, which I don't think at this point it's allowed, but there's, you know, these groups are still getting together and especially the younger people. What would you say to them? We are in this together and that by quarantining themselves, we have a better chance for everybody to survive. There are going to be people who don't make it. There's already been almost 8,000 deaths globally in our global community. And so people have to think not only about what's best for them right now, but also what's best for us all in the future. It's hard. We don't have a culture in which we value each other very much. We have a very individualistic culture. And so if we're trained that you always have to make the best decision that's for you, then you go to a restaurant and you have a good time. So So people really need to recreate their lives at this point. People need to recreate their lives. And we really need to plug into what really serves us, which is still available to us. So social connections via 
internet, texting, FaceTime, phone calls. Nature is still available to us if you can, you know, find your way there. If you have a car, it's, you know, certainly hard on bus and um, to do social distancing on the bus. Although I've heard around Seattle, the buses are fairly empty. We haven't really gone anywhere. So in the last four or five days, but I would say nature is still available to us. So being outside is always a good place to go. I agree. And over the last few days, we've been hiking and snowshoeing and taking walks and really enjoying the peace and quiet that is out there. I think that there's no other place I'd rather be. How about you? Yep, I totally agree. (laughs) Thinking about the risk of Mm -hmm. this virus, who really is at risk at this point? We're still really looking at the data to figure out who is at risk and why. One clear thing is by age. So our elderly are certainly getting hit very hard. 18% of case fatalities are in the 80 years and older group. And then it slowly goes down by percentage, but certainly the 70 and older are next most vulnerable, 60 and older are next most vulnerable. So I'm curious with the elderly, if they're in pretty good shape, they haven't smoked, they're, you know, they eat organic, they exercise and such, would that put them into a different category? Sicker elders are definitely more at risk, but it's all elders that are at risk. One thing that I'm finding interesting that I'm still watching patterns for is we know that kids don't have a very well-developed immune system. We know that the elderly have a slowly lessening immune system. You know, their bodies just aren't making those proteins as well anymore as, as we get older and older and older. So usually something like a flu hits both the young and the old. But in COVID-19, it's really only hitting the elderly. Why is that? We just don't know. The one thing that we know that's different between elderly and youth is oxidative stress. So when we look at oxidative stress as a reflection of global inflammation, we see that the elderly have it in a way that children who may not have a very well-developed immune system don't have it. Children don't have oxidative stress. They just haven't been here long enough to accumulate a burden of pollution, a burden of oxidative stress. So I've been watching that. The second piece that I find interesting is that the greatest comorbidity for this disease is not actually chronic lung disease. It's up there. It's third, but it's not first. So what's first is cardiovascular disease. And second is diabetes and hypertension. So why is that? Both of those things hold also oxidative stress. The other thing is that there is a potential link between ACE inhibitors or ACE receptor blockers. Those are two classes of drugs that we use for high blood pressure. And there's some thinking that they upregulate the number of receptors in, of these ACE receptors in the lungs. And that if you have more ACE receptors, you may latch more virus. So there's a potential for that. Now, will stopping your, will stopping your medications change that? No, not at this immediate point because it takes time to downregulate receptors. So take coming off of any blood pressure medications is not going to be helpful right now. We need to find another way around this. But there is that possibility for inflammation. And the third thing is that there are a few case reports that just started coming out at the end of last week about from France about the use of ibuprofen and younger fatalities. So the French Minister of Health tweeted something out about a doc in the south of France who had four who reported four cases of ventilator-dependent COVID-19 patients 
who were in their 30s with no known comorbidities, um, but apparently they had come in and reported taking ibuprofen. There's a lot that we don't know here, so I even hesitate to mention it. But one thing that we know is that ibuprofen or NSAIDs over time do interrupt the remodeling. We call it remodeling of our tissues, and they can lead to cardiovascular inflammation. So the classic example of this is the drug Biox, which was used for musculoskeletal pain and then had to eventually be taken off the market because people were having increased number of heart attacks. While NSAIDs or ibuprofen can be excellent for short-term anti-inflammatory, used long-term, it doesn't allow the body to complete its inflammation cycle. And so it kind of gets locked into something that somehow leads to more cardiovascular disease. And it's through this COX-2 pathway. So we actually do know the pathway, but whether that's playing a role here with younger people getting sick, we don't know. So there's a lot of components that we don't know. And in terms of risk, um, there's not a huge mass of folks with cancer who are getting COVID-19. Although when people who are sick with cancer do contract this disease, they do seem to have more severe symptoms. So there seems to be some kind of tipping point. One question we get a lot is about autoimmune disease or mast cell activation syndrome, um, dysautonomia. These are all inflammatory conditions that are housed within the class of immune dysfunction. But not necessarily immune deficiency. And certainly we know that COVID-19 damages us with its cytokine storm. So it's not only that the virus is impacting your body, but your body is trying so hard to fight it that you basically blow up your own you blow up your own village trying to destroy the enemy, if that makes sense. And so sometimes actually interrupting that can potentially improve outcomes. Certainly patients with rheumatoid diseases who are on biologics or immune suppression drugs are at greater risk, but we don't have data yet about whether folks with mast cell activation or dysautonomia or these other autoimmune conditions who are not on biologics, we don't know if they are at greater risk yet. It doesn't seem anecdotally that these folks are getting sick more frequently. It may well be true that if they do get sick, that they have a more severe case, but we don't have that data yet, to my knowledge. And what about smokers? Considering that this really attacks the lungs, I'm wondering in Italy, because a lot of people do smoke there, if that was one of the factors in a lot of people who ended up dying. I don't know the data about smokers and COVID-19. I do know certainly that smoking makes your lungs more vulnerable. I also know that smoking increases oxidative stress. So the assumption would be that, yes, that is the case, but I don't know the data on it. Okay. Can we move into prevention and maybe get into some solutions? Yeah. If you're enjoying this show, please be sure to share it with your friends and rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our other shows as well. We talk about everything. You should also know that we do have a local practice in Seattle, Washington, where we see patients via in-person or telemedicine visits. Please come stop by and see us or give us a call for an online consult. You can get all the details of our clinic and the services we offer through our website, centerforhealingneurology.com, and find Janie Pennington-Watson at her website, JanyPennington.com. There's two ways to think about prevention. One way is that we want to prevent ourselves from getting sick or from getting as severely sick. So to prevent ourselves from getting sick, there's all mainly the recommendations are really good hand hygiene, hand washing, 20 seconds. It seems like an eternity, not touching your face when you're out in public, 
so that you're not literally handing the virus your mucous membranes um, and social distancing. So those are the primary things for preventing getting sick. I think even being that, even saying that, I think that most of us will come into contact with this. In the second stage of prevention is lifestyle because our immune system works best when it's rested and it's ready to go. So we can do that by making sure that we sleep enough hours at night, making sure that our sleep is sound, making sure that we get into bed early enough, that we turn off all of our lights, that it's quiet, that it's cool in our bedroom, whatever those things are that help us sleep. Melatonin can be helpful for making sure that you're getting enough sleep. Um, and the second thing we want to do is healthy diet. So a healthy anti-inflammatory diet. We want to avoid alcohol and sugar if we can. Gluten, some people don't tolerate it. Some people do. Dairy and meat can be inherently inflammatory. So decreasing those, increasing our vegetable intake, our micronutrient intake, adding juicing into our lives can be really helpful for getting micronutrients. Can you talk about vegetables? Because I think a lot of people are a little nervous about using fresh vegetables and uh, them being already uh, exposed. So vegetables really certainly should be washed well. That is no doubt about it. Vegetables should be washed well. And the vegetables, according to Ayurveda, the traditional medical system of India, that are appropriate for when there's fear and anxiety are actually warm stews and soups. So certainly if you're going to cook your root vegetables, you're going to not have coronavirus be part of that. In terms of salads, um, I don't know if there's data about coronavirus transmission via salad greens, but certainly everything should be washed and rinsed. Can use a vinegar solution. A quarter cup to a large bowl and then just place all the, the vegetables in, in it and leave them there for 30, 40 seconds, if okay. not longer. Mm-hmm. So and, then, that, and rub them really well. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if, I don't know the impact of vinegar on coronavirus, um, but certainly washing vegetables is very, very important. And it's also a good time to start a victory garden or to be eating spring weeds. So our other podcast with Mesha Jones, she does talk about this in depth, early um, vegetables that are out right now, like nettles and dandelions and miner's lettuce and chickweed um, for wild crafting. If you are in an area that has the, that growing in the woods or starting garden. Always the best thing to do. Always. Multiple times. Yes, exactly. And what supplements would you suggest taking? There's a number of options. We have been in contact with viruses for as long as we've been humans and probably for longer than that even. So every continent, every landmass has its own antivirals. So the list that I have is certainly not exhaustive. These are just some suggestions. But some things that we find are lysine and monolaurin and olive leaf. And we have a protocol on our wellevate.me backslash Eileen dash Ruhoy, R-U-H-O-Y. And Wellevate is W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E. So if you go to wellevate.me backslash Eileen dash Ruhoy um, and make an account there, we give you a 15% discount on supplements and you can look at what our protocol is with olive leaf monolaurin and lysine. We also recommend zinc. There's some evidence that zinc may be helpful and supportive. Quercetin is helpful as a mast cell stabilizer. And mast cells are cells that are part of the innate immune system that trigger inflammation and respond to infection. So mast cells are certainly part of the COVID-19 response that you're by your body. And so quieting them, helping support them 
to make an appropriate response can be helpful, as well as quercetin can be an antiviral in its own right. There's also some preventatives that you can use, including um, vitamin C, 10 grams IV weekly can be helpful. And there are some peptides. And one of our other podcasts talks about peptides, but you can get Selenc as a nasal spray or thymosin alpha-1 as an injection, like a tiny little insulin needle. And so those also can be really helpful as preventative antivirals. And where can you find those? So if you're coming in for preventative care, you can come into our clinic for the IV vitamin C at 10 grams. That's a lower dose and anti-inflammatory dose. Higher doses, like 25 grams and higher, is really used as a pro-oxidant, like in cancer. So we stay with a low 10 grams uh, dosing for prevention. We also have glutathione IV push. Um, and the peptides we can order through a clinic visit at Center for Healing Neurology, which we are happy to do via telemedicine at this point. Is your office open currently? So we are closed this week, but we are going to be opening next week. We're kind of doing a soft open so that we are still manning the phones this week. I shouldn't say manning. We are still responding. We're still womaning the phone. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Womaning. I like that. Is that a term? It should be. If you can say man, you should be able to say womaning. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) It works for me. We're answering the phones. I guess you could say that. Oh, that's the first step. (laughs) We are taking calls and we are having televisits this week. Um, And we will, we are doing some select visits in clinic this week and we'll be doing more and more of those in the future. So next week we will be open. Okay. And if someone's starting to display symptoms, what should they do? Great question. So there's a few things that you can do right off the bat, I would have on the ready vitamin A and vitamin D. Talk with your doctor before you do this because these are higher doses, but they can be helpful at the beginning of any viral flare, any infective flare. So it's vitamin A, 50 to 100,000 units for three days only and then stop. And that's really important because vitamin A is a fat soluble vitamin and it can accumulate in your tissues. And you can do vitamin D, 50,000 units for three, one, 50,000 units once a day for three days and then stop also. Um, If you've got myeloma, if you've got sarcoidosis, then definitely talk with your doctor because those and a few other select conditions can be contraindications, meaning reasons not to take this. Normal average person. And those are the doses I actually recommend for one-year-olds when they get their measles, mumps, rubella, because there's documented evidence with vitamin A against measles. So this is fine for children as well. But please, because these are higher doses, talk with your doctor first before taking them. But that's one thing to have on the ready. The other thing is that that higher dose of quercetin might be helpful. When and if the inflammation ramps up in someone's body and becomes life-threatening, what do you do? If you do develop symptoms, you should be tested. Testing is becoming more and more widespread. So uh, here in Seattle, I know Swedish is doing a pop-up clinic. So it's like drive-by. You can really get out of your car. You just come and somebody comes to you in a moon suit and puts a swab down your nose and you cough a bunch and then you just drive on your way and then you can get tested. So testing is happening more and more. Um, and it, it sounds painless. I know. I know. It <laughs> it's pretty painless. I would say yeah. a little bit painless. Okay. <laughs> um, a nasal swab. But 
if you do have symptoms, do not just go into your doctor's office, always call ahead. And if you are a patient of ours at Center for Healing Neurology, or you'd like to be and you're having symptoms, please do not come to our clinic. Definitely call ahead and we can advise you from there. Um, we also do have some swabs for testing for established patients. If you're having trouble breathing, then you do have to go to the emergency room and you should call ahead and say, or hopefully somebody can call ahead on your behalf and say, I am a patient who has respiratory troubles, distress, and I'm coming in and it may well be COVID-19 so that they're prepared for you. Um, especially if their beds are full, maybe they may have a better hospital for you to go to. So please do call, always call ahead. Before that, there's this range from when a person has a first symptom to before they get respiratory distress, when symptoms can take a course of ramping up. And I know these are circulating on the internet and it can be hard to get information, even for providers. So I'm just going to run through them to give you names and some resources. So first of all, there's antiretrovirals that are being used. So these are HIV drugs. Uh, this virus is an RNA virus. And so RNA... Um, antiretrovirals essentially impact RNA replication. Uh, so there's a combination of something called ritonavir and lopinavir called Kaletra. The commercial product with these two drugs in it are called Kaletra, and that's one option. There's something also called remdesivir. That's another option. These are not options that you will be able to necessarily go in and say, I want this or call your pharmacy. And your doctor may not know, but I do think it's important to get the information out. There's another class of drugs um, that includes something called hydroxychloroquine. We're not exactly sure how this works, but there is potential that it might interrupt the cytokine storm of our body's own immune system, causing more damage but the mechanism isn't yet clear. Daruhoy, the neurologist at Center for Healing Neurology, and I have talked a little bit about IVIG, intravenous immunoglobulin G, IVIG, to calm the immune system without suppressing the immune system. There is some documentation of this use, and we recommend it for preventative support as five grams weekly for four weeks. Who would qualify for that then? Nobody for this indication, which is why we carry it to make it available to people. And there is some investigation now into a therapy originating in the 19th century in which pull out and spin down the plasma, so take the, some of the blood of patients who have recovered from a disease, currently obviously COVID-19, and inject that into patients who are sick to see if the antibodies from the recovered person can help the sick person actually recover from the disease. When do you think a, a vaccine would be available if um, they're able to come up with one? I have no idea. I'm going to be honest. I have no idea. So I okay. don't know where these people can access any of yeah. these things, but I think that they're just important to mention that we do have some out-of-the-box options to be considered. You have also mentioned stem cell therapy. So stem cell therapy, so stem cell therapy and IVIG can both really bolster the immune system actually before a person even gets sick. And so if you are a person who feels like you are at risk, please call our clinic and we can discuss whether this might be actually beneficial for you preventatively. I do have a few other questions from other people. I had a question about someone who was saying or asking if this spread of the virus is politically driven. What are your thoughts? I mean, really, I have no idea, but I don't think so because anybody who has enough power to really direct a viral spread of this magnitude seems like they would stand to lose a lot if there was a serious enough recession because powerful people tend to own things like stocks that are currently losing a lot of value. So 
I don't know, but I don't think that that's the case. And we do have good evidence that epidemics do spread naturally from viral genetic drift. And so this does follow a natural course that we've seen in history before. I don't think that the disease is politically driven. I think that our response is one person trying to look better than another. And I think that's why we had such a delay in testing initially um, and so many holdbacks on testing. I think that may well be political, but I don't think that the disease itself is political. Thank you. Thanks for uh, answering that question. Yeah. Um, the next question is a little bit more intense here. <laughs> um, so the ACE2 enzyme, uh, if understood, the ACE2 enzyme mediates the entry of the SARS-CoV-2 virus into human cells. Is that the correct way to understand this aspect of the mechanism of action? So it's not the ACE2 enzyme, it's the ACE2 receptor is what the coronavirus, this COVID-19, this particular type of coronavirus, seems to latch onto in the lungs. It's not clear to me if that's the only way or just the one way that we have documented. So I'm not exactly sure if that's totally the way to understand it, but that is one way in which this virus does enter the body is through the ACE2 receptor. Okay, and does the ACE2 receptor act on cells system-wide with regard to this virus? So there are ACE2 receptors all over the body. They're, in the, they're concentrated in the intestines, the kidneys, um, the lungs, the heart. And what the ACE, ACE stands for angiotensin converting enzyme. So it converts angiotensin to impact the water-salt balance in the body. Um, so it, this impacts blood pressure. And that's why we use that receptor as part of our um, arsenal of pharmaceuticals to impact high blood pressure. Um, is, so is this entry currently reversible, for instance, given time and the tendency for natural healing? We can't reverse the entry of the virus. We don't have at this point a way that I am aware of to block the entry of the virus into the body. Our goal really is to support the body through the course that the virus runs when in the body. And some of that is the impact of the virus itself. And some of that is the impact of our own inflammation. So for instance, um, we all know that when we get sick, we often get a fever. That's an appropriate response to illness. A fever is the body's attempt to make the body inhospitable to an organism, to a foreign organism. If it works, the organism, it's not hospitable and the organism kind of goes away and the body takes care of it. If it doesn't work, the fever can just go higher and higher and higher. And eventually you kind of cook yourself and you and the virus, or you and the bacteria, you and the organism kind of die together. So that is still what's happening to some degree in COVID-19. Not only the virus, but also our body's inflammatory response to it. And so our goal is we can't really reverse the entry of the virus into the body that I know of, other than blocking it with a mask, washing it away with hands, avoiding social contact to pick it up in the first place. But once it's in the lungs, there's nothing that I know that stops the virus from binding onto lung receptors. Okay. Will you elaborate on why 
these circumstances lead to such a breakdown of the immune system and why that breakdown is proving to be fatal at a higher rate than other viral infections? So I don't know if we exactly know why um, we're getting the fatalities that we're getting or if this is just a matter of how, um, how widespread it is. Anytime we get genetic drift, we are encountering something that we have never encountered before. So it's kind of like when um, the colonists came to the United States and the people that were here, the indigenous people here, had huge swaths of people die of smallpox. And the people who came over on the ships weren't dying because their, their immune system had acclimatized to a lot of those illnesses already, whereas the, the people here were not, their immune systems were naive to that influence. Coronavirus or COVID-19 specifically is, we are all naive to this novel virus. So we are all in the new world being brought blankets with smallpox. Just by this genetic drift, not by any person's intentions. And we are just trying to slow the spread of it so that we have enough time to develop some herd immunity. The good news is, is that once this does pass, the majority of us will develop immunity and we will pass those, that we will pass that immunity around. Um, and so we will overall have less illness in relation to it, but it does take time. Would you recommend a neti pot then, keeping that nose cavity moist? The nasal cavity, for the most part, remains moist anyway. I think the question is about flushing. Um, yes. And I think it's hard for me to tell whether, you know, if you get it on the outside, if you would flush it in further if you use neti pot, um, or whether you would flush it out. For the most part, with viral illnesses, I do recommend nanny pot and I recommend coconut oil in the inside of the, the nose. It's a gentle antiviral and it keeps those nasal membranes um, healthy and supple so that they can do their immune activity. But I'm not exactly okay. sure if there's any data with this particular virus. Okay. Is there something that can be done proactively during the seven to nine days of harmless cold symptoms that might increase the probability of recovery without acquiring pneumonia? So it's just those prevention things that we talked about. If you're an appropriate person for higher dose A and D, vitamins A and D, absolutely zinc, absolutely quercetin, absolutely the antiviral protocol. Um, there are some things that you can start now. For instance, lower dose quercetin, zinc, um, even some oral vitamin C, those things, making sure that you're sleeping well, all of those things will help with prevention as well as with early uh, illness. And then if you do know that you have an exposure, like you, an exposure you can't deny, like you were taking, you know, like you're a healthcare worker and you were taking care of a sick patient or you're a parent taking care of a sick child or a sick elder, um, then you would want to ramp up those other strategies that we discussed. Okay, so with a person who has a family of origin history of three deaths due to severe pulmonary disease and a personal history of several pneumonias, how, how does such history figure in the development of pneumonia if COVID-19 is contracted? 
So there's a concept in Ayurveda called Kavaigunya, which technically means defective space. And it's the idea that once you have a vulnerability, you are more likely to have illness rest in that same place. And certain, certainly chronic respiratory disease is a higher risk factor. So the goal is that we develop herd immunity slowly. And we're trying to do that with social distancing and quarantine. And um, if you have that type of history, then you need to be especially proactive in your own interactions in order to avoid exposure. Um, delaying your exposure also may allow us to develop, may give us more time to develop a vaccination or develop some other supportive, you know, learn more about this virus. So even if you're going to get it in three months instead of now, we may have a better shot. Um, the other thing is that if somebody with that type of history does contract it, um, the illness is likely to be more severe in its course. Why do you think people in their um, late 20s, 30s, and 40s are contracting this? I honestly believe that it's related to that oxidative. This is not data-driven, but this is just my trying to figure out patterns. Um, I think it's related to that oxidative stress component. I think that we have more people who take ibuprofen on a regular basis than we think. Um, we know that ibuprofen can be helpful even for depression as an anti-inflammatory. And so I think there's a lot of people out there who work in their 20s and 30s who work jobs, who feel already ground down and who take commonly ibuprofen or who have greater levels of oxidative stress. And that would be my guess. Oxidative stress is not something that we often see. We can see it later in terms of chronic disease, but remember that things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, even autoimmune disease, a lot of those things that are inflammatory in nature and that are chronic start out when we're in our 20s or even our late teens, depending on our diet or lifestyle or mental health patterns. Um, and they just don't present until, until we're in our 40s, 50s, 60s. It may well be something else too. I just don't think we have enough data yet. I can't tell you how invaluable this information has been. Would you mind summarizing um, everything for me and for yeah. the people listening? Absolutely. So what we talked about today to review is that the numbers are going to skyrocket and this is going to get worse before it gets better. Part of that might be because suddenly in the U.S. we've got more testing available. But the truth is, is that there are going to be more people that get sick and more people that die before we're done with this. Part of that is because the exposure, this virus has such a long period of viral shedding that we are more than likely going to be exposed for this. And if we have vulnerable histories, if we have respiratory conditions, then we wanna be particularly careful for ourselves, but we also wanna do social distancing and quarantining for our neighbors. And that's part of why schools are closed. And there's a lot of argument about this, about closing schools because kids are not actually getting sick, but children are incredible vectors for virus. And, you know, children's continue to gather. So we were, um, going for a bike ride on Saturday and there was a public park and it was just filled with children um, <laughs> touching all these stainless steel bars. And I'm sure now three days later, there's coronavirus all over that place. So it's just something to think about is that we are probably going to get exposed. We want to get exposed thoughtfully. 
We want to do great prevention by making sure that we're eating well, we're sleeping, we're exercising. I don't think I mentioned exercise, but exercise and time out in nature, are, that's the kind of four foundations to keep yourself generally healthy. There's some supplements that we can use to support our immune system along the way, like lysine, monolaurin, zinc, quercetin. Um, we can do peptides, um, nasal selenc or thymosin alpha-1 or vitamin C, 10 grams IV weekly, even IVIG, 5 grams IV weekly. And if that's something that you're curious about, please call us at the clinic. We're happy to talk about it with you. And then there's some things that you can do acutely if you are developing symptoms. So that might be higher dose vitamin A and D. Please talk with your doctor about that. Doing higher dose quercetin and then you might consider antiretrovirals like Kaletra, which is ritonavir and lopinavir. There's hydroxychloroquine, um, which is an oral therapy. There's stem cell therapy. There's possibly this plasma transfusion from previously infected patients. And um, I'm sure that more treatments will be coming out in the future. This is not a time necessarily to stay away from ibuprofen if you do develop a fever. But as a rule, it's not good to take an NSAID for an extended time. Um, we got to find other ways around musculoskeletal pain or whatever you're taking it for. The final component here is that this is absolutely a disruption to our lives. And there's a lot of people out there who are having a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety. Incredible financial pressure, stress, and hardship for individuals and families. And remember that over 8,000 people have already lost their lives. There is going to be a lot of grief and suffering in our world before this improves. And so we really need to anchor down into our breath, into our body. And we have a whole other podcast that talks about that component of it. Reinventing a daily life, create anchors of meal times, wake times, sleep times, exercise times, and continue to seek out connection through FaceTime, texting, emailing, other elements of social. I've never been a big encourager of social media until now. So, <laughs> well, and speaking of social media, I know I'm going to be posting this on all of my social sites. Um, where can people find um, the Center for Healing Neurology online? So centerforhealingneurology.com is our web address. We also have an Instagram and Facebook pages. We'll be posting this and we'll continue to post updates. Um, we want you to have the most accurate and up-to-date information, and absolutely, this is changing. Our understanding is changing by the day and by the week. So my feeling is that what I'm telling you is going to stay true and accurate. Certainly, there's things we don't know that I, we talked about today, but as we get more information, we will be sharing it. And I think if people are feeling anxious and scared, and um, what do you feel like they should do? Absolutely go outside, lay on the earth, rest in the natural cosmic order. The sun continues to come up. The flowers are still coming out on the trees. The birds are singing. Our cycles of the planets turning on their axes continue unabated. So while this coronavirus, this COVID-19 can result in terrible panic about who will lose, what's going to happen to our lives, this economic and financial meltdown that we're facing, um, there are a lot of people who are going to be suffering quite a bit, but the natural world still is continuing to grow. So getting your hands in the dirt and our, the other podcast, we talked about the transdermal microbes that can actually improve mood, um, as well as figuring out how, where you sit along that continuum of resource deficient or resource 
flush. If you have extra resource and are able to share it, then absolutely please do because it's part of what makes us a social being um, is being able to give back and being able to help and contribute. And if you are resource deficient, then please do ask. And um, there are mutual aid societies that are being started up in Seattle, but we well understand that we do not have a good social safety net in our country at this point. And so there are a lot of us that can, are going to have a lot of suffering and we need to take care of each other. It's part of our human family. It is. And there's so much fake news and rumors and um, yeah. having Center for Healing Neurology, you and Dr. Eileen Ruhoy and Dr. David Kaufman um, yeah. out there to um, have truth and news and uh Give us this information is so well needed. So appreciate you, Jillian. And um, I'm so excited to get this information out to so many people that are um, really craving it at this point. Absolutely. And we have discussed doing some um, Facebook town halls. Uh, or some Facebook Great idea. Streams with just where people can ask questions. So if we do end up scheduling those, um, just check back on the website on the front page of the website and that'll be posted there and we'll post it on our social sites as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for, you know, being you and giving oh. us this knowledge that we're, we're all looking for at this point. Thank you, Janie. Thank you so much for all the work you do as a medical mm -hmm. conduit. Um, <laughs> an advocate and an advocate for a different way of practicing medicine we really need more like you out there doing well, that really it's my pleasure it. and thank you for asking such great questions oh well, thank you for having me i appreciate it yeah stay well stay well you too stay well thank you Thank you for listening today with Janie Pennington Watson. We've got lots of ways to continue this conversation through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Find us at the centerforhealingneurology.com. Please be sure to share this show with your friends, and we welcome your rating and reviews wherever you get your podcasts. And please send topic requests as well as questions to podcast at centerforhealingneurology.com. We love that you've joined us today for this special edition on COVID-19 to discuss how to make our world medicine. We rise or fall together and we're committed to doing what we can to make as many of us as healthy as possible. And this takes all of us, including you. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Fish Media acknowledges that it operates and records on indigenous Duwamish and Puget Sound Coast Salish land that is still home to the Duwamish tribe. This land is stolen in violation of the Point Elliott Treaty of 1855. We are committed to uplifting the name of these lands and community members from these nations who reside alongside us. For more information on this land, its people, or ways you can help, visit duwamishtribe.org or realrentduwamish.org.